Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined via Zoom by Chris Booth. There's nobody better. The audience gets what they want. You know, normally every week you hear me say, if you're a fan of this show, go support us on Patreon. You'll get access to the slides. I got something new to say this time. I think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcast that I love, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our dollar bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. Chris, it's so good to see you. Thanks for having me back, Vinay. So it's a pleasure to join you again uh, after just a short, uh, short break since our last chat. It's just been a short break. Chris is, of course, professor of medicine at uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. He is a practicing hematologist, oncologist. No, 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 just medical oncologist. In Canada, they have the good sense not to delve into the heme world. And he is a GIGU oncologist. Chris, uh, pleasure to have you back. One of the few people who has sat in the hot seat, guest host of this show. Yes, and uh, as listeners may recall, I'm still looking for my family as we got lost in the uh, the forests of Oregon about a couple of years ago now <laughs> on the famous Seven Waterfall Hike. And uh, your interviewing skills while you drove were better than your uh, cartography skills. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, a little few wrong turns, few wrong turns. Well, yeah. now now I'm back. I'm 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 out of. I'm out of the woods of Oregon. Yes. So Chris, we're going to talk about a new paper that's coming out any day now. Maybe at the time of this recording, it's just come out. Um, but first, we were going to talk about the questions that listeners have been asking me. You know, listeners ask, they listen to Chris Booth. They always love when you come on. But they have a lot of questions about career, um, life in general. And so I thought I might pick your brain a little bit. Um, first question. You know, for somebody in hematology oncology, how does that person make the decision of a career in academic hemonc versus going into practice? How did you make that decision? How should they make that decision? Um, great question. So if I think back to my career evolution, um, I knew at a very early age, uh, you know, primary school, I wanted to be an internist. Um, just joking about that. But uh, so it's pretty <laughs> easy for medical school to know I was going to go the internal medicine route. And then um, I think you and I have discussed this before, but I had a very last minute detour into oncology, very last minute. Um, you know, we'd already been interviewing for other positions and I loved all areas of internal medicine. In fact, I was going to be an, an ICU doctor and palliative care doctor and was interviewing for those fellowships mm. when um, at the last moment I had an elective, an outpatient oncology elective at Princess Margaret Hospital. And at that time, most internal medicine training programs in Canada uh, we did not rotate through the outpatient center, the cancer center. We were on the wards looking after end-stage patients with cancer, which, which you know, I found gratifying and intellectually and personally satisfying, but it wasn't mm -hmm. something I necessarily thought I would do full-time for a career. I see. And uh, for a, a number of reasons, I had this 
outpatient elective late in my PGY3 year. So we interview in the fall of PGY3 for subspecialties. I'd already interviewed for critical care. And at the time thought I was going to do an ICU palliative care hybrid and then did uh, a, a month of clinic at Princess Margaret. But it was on day two at the end of day two. Um, I probably told you the story about walk down the hall, put a quarter in the pay phone uh, to call <laughs> Celeste and said, I think I want to be a cancer doctor. And she said, you should think about it. It's been two days. I said, no, the application produced six weeks ago. Anyhow, long story short, <laughs> um, they humored me and gave me an interview at Princess Margaret University of Toronto and, and let me into their program. But mm -hmm. so my career path was um, a little bit of serendipity, I guess, keeping open minded to different things. But I guess coming back to how I landed, what I'm doing now is it was these very rich, we've talked about this before, this very privileged position we have as oncologists to share these um, poignant moments with our patients. Um, and it was that rich human connection that I, I could tell within two days that's something I wanted to do for, for a career. I knew I would never get tired of that. And, you know, the science and epidemiology and, and other elements of cancer care are also interesting, but it was the very real human connection. Um, so I guess kind of getting back to your question about uh -huh. how one might consider approaching different career paths, what I tell the yeah. students is just to keep an open mind. Um, because I know there's a huge amount of pressure, you know, coming out of high school to know you want to be a neurosurgery, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, of the cerebellum, but to try to resist that pressure and to try to keep open minded, because the reality is, is I tell the students, just remember that moment when you got the letter or the email telling you that you were accepted to medical school uh -huh. and how you felt. All of us were just thrilled. All of us just wanted to be doctors. And at that time, there was probably a whole list of different types of medicine we would have been thrilled to practice. And it becomes a little bit artificial later in medical school or residency where, you know, this is culture where I could only be an orthopedic surgeon. I could only right. be a nephrologist or right. something like that. The reality is, as many of us, including myself, and I'm sure you too, uh, would be very happy in many different areas of medicine. So try to resist that pressure early to pigeonhole yourself because you might have these kind of career opportunities or, or um, pivot points that allow you to make different decisions. So retain an open-minded approach. Um, I guess the power of mentorship, you know, I've been very privileged to have some amazing mentors who have opened doors and opportunities for me and allowed me to see career paths in, in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, finding someone you connect with and the way I approach now that, you know, I'm getting on in my career and I'm, you know, often the one giving advice, although I still touch base with my mentors regularly, Yes, is uh, when a student or a resident comes to me and wants advice and wants to work with me either clinically or in a project, I'm very upfront. Yeah. And I tell them, I say, look, you know, we're going to start working together. And my goal is to support you in your career. And if you decide you want to be an oncologist or go into internal medicine, that's great. And I'll be really happy. But at the end of the day, I want to help you find what it is you want to do. So mm -hmm. I never want you to feel pressured that you have to tell me that you want to be a GI medical oncologist or oncologist or internist at all. Uh -huh. If you tell me after our time together that you're falling in love with psychiatry, family medicine, obstetrics, I'll be thrilled because at the end of the day, we just want our students and trainees to find the area of medicine where, where they will thrive. And so that's that's why I often approach that is, you know, let's just find an area where, where people are passionate about it. The other thing I encourage trainees to think about is um, uh, where you want to live, um, where you want to work. Uh, you know, if you're going to keep training yourself into an uber, uber specialized niche, yes. then that job market will dictate where you live and work. I see. Um, and this is really important because, you know, as I said at the outset, there's many areas of medicine we all would love. And we need to think about the family and life side of, of these decisions as well. And you have to be prepared 
to balance where having control over where you live versus the career that you want. So I think that's obviously something important. And you know, lifestyle, how hard you want to work. Um, I think there's much different gradients in income in medicine in the U.S. between different specialties. We certainly do have that in Canada, but I think to a lesser extent. And so these are all, all things that uh, certainly that, that, that I considered kind of in hindsight and, and sometimes, you know, prospectively as I was going through decision making as well. I see. I see. That, uh, that's interesting. And, I, and I've heard you talk about this before. And I, I just want to point out that, you know, your mentors must have been really something special because, you know, they had to work with you, Chris. So they really had to overcome <laughs> whatever, whatever deficit they started with. They overcame it. Um, okay. But here's my question then. Um, so, I mean, I, I think you're really good. I mean, to be open-minded about the fact that, you know, it doesn't really matter to you what the right specialty is for a person. I think you're right. Um, but what about the choice? Um, I guess in Canada, they could choose to be in a private practice situation or in the academy. How do they make that choice? Again, I am... Um, most, you know, most trainees who come to me, they gravitate towards me because I tend to do a lot of academic scholarship and research. So yeah. they're coming to me for those types of projects. And often they have an idea they want to do that for a career. But I'm also very clear and say, you know what, the goal of this project is to have fun, to learn something and kind of open what a research career might be. And, um, you know, I, I, a very large proportion, I haven't, I should go back and do a highlighting color code exercise like yeah. we talked about before. Yeah. Amongst yeah. the trainees I've worked with, how many actually end up doing kind of serious academic work and some become, um, you know, superb clinicians working in the community. Yeah. I'm guessing yeah. it's half and half. I see. And I think that, you know, um, one of the problems with academic medicine is we, we celebrate the research superstars and maybe uh, to a certain extent, the educational stars. But, you know, at the end of the day, clinical care is the most important thing right, that we do. Right. And I always, it bothers me that that is not um, acknowledged or recognized enough within the academy. And, and it should be because it's the cornerstone of everything that we do. So I have a very similar conversation with trainees about, um, you know, what it is that you love to do. Um, is, it, is it patient care? Do you want to have more or less control over your schedule, more or less control over where you live? Um, there is an income differential, but it's not nearly I mean, you and my colleagues in the, in the United States take a huge income cut to work mm -hmm. in the academy. And, yeah, we do yeah. Um, uh, take an income cut to some extent. In some specialties, it can be quite substantial, but it's, it's much less so than the United States. And um, I guess the other consideration is, you know, how much more training do you want to get? So this is something I can push back on you. Because um, I was reading something you wrote once, and you and I have had this dialogue offline, but let's put it out there for the listeners to see Prasad taking a few punches from Booth. So, uh, <laughs> I think the gist of it was something like, uh, there's nothing that you can learn beyond uh, your clinical training, and any extra fellowship training is a waste of time. Wait a second. So, so let's take a step back. And I, I do partially <laughs> agree with you. I partially agree with you. Okay. In, in Canada... If you want to get an academic job, there is an expectation that you will do some advanced training. Okay, and so in our world in oncology, uh, just like you, we do three years of internal medicine, and then um, we're not as smart as you guys. We can't handle both blood and solid tumors, so we have to pick <laughs> one. But we learn it in two years, not three. So anyhow, so then we do two years of heme or solid yeah. tumor medonc, yeah, um, and then you're qualified. You pass your exams, you can go get a job in the real world, yeah. Um, his generally now, if you want to get a job at an academic center, you're expected to have something additional. And that could be a year of advanced clinical training, uh, research training, educational training, something like that. So there is an expectation. And I, I, I know that there is 
creep within medical education to add more and more layers to this. And, and I totally agree with you um, that there's I, there's nothing that I would have learned in, you know, put it this way, I don't think you need an extra year of breast cancer or colon cancer clinical training uh -huh. to be ready to be an academic star in that area. I, I think, you know, some of my colleagues might be annoyed that I said that, but uh. <laughs> what we do, what we do is not rocket science. We've been well trained for many, many years. And the reality is in your first couple of years, as a junior attending, you're going to be overwhelmed and lost periodically anyhow, and you're going to have a steep learning curve, and you just ask for help and, and read around cases. So I'm not so sure that um, that has super high value. And I think those were the types of fellowships that you were mostly talking about. But the fellowships, I think, that have real yeah. value, because we go through training and we learn how to become good clinical doctors, that doesn't mean we're good teachers, oh, we're good no. scholars or researchers. And right. so the fellowships that I think have the most value post clinical training are ones which give you new skill sets that will benefit the academy. I, ideally, uh, you know, hardcore, serious educational scholarship, um, you know, teaching, but really kind of educational scholarship, how to design curricula, new residency programs, models of teaching, etc., or research methods. Now, it might be going to the lab for a translational career. It might be learning epidemiology, biostatistics, health services research, or a clinical trials fellowship. So there we go. So there's Booth's long-winded rebuttal to Prasad. Over to you. <laughs> Take that. What do you say? I yeah, I, I'm interested. I I wonder if you know one of the reasons why we have different um, feelings on this initially. Although I think we we're probably closer than we would you know initially admit. Um, but I wonder if one of the differences is a U.S. Canada difference. Um, I don't know. I haven't thought about it all all completely, but. My understanding is this is something somebody from Ireland told me because, you know, I trained at the NCI. They have a lot of Irish fellows. And they said, uh, I was like, you know, well, why y'all? This person was a superb clinician, really good at research. You know, I, I didn't think this person could be taught anything. This person was that good. You know, one of the stars in Ireland. And, and she came over nonetheless to come to the NCI and redo training. And I'm like, why do so many Irish come to the NCI and do all this training? And she said, well, the truth is there's just not that many medical oncology jobs in Ireland. Yeah. Like you have to wait for a job to open up. Yeah. And she says, and I. And I don't want to push someone down a flight of stairs. So I have to wait a while for the job yeah, to open up. Yeah. And so the same thing, I think, to some degree, the, the, the labor market is different. In the U.S., of course, the number of spots for medical oncologists is very open-ended. And so they can always create some more spots. Um, I think in Canada, it's probably tighter, especially in the academic centers. Like, you can't just snap your fingers and have a spot. Um, so that might be part of the difference why people in Canada gravitate to the extra fellowships. And the other thing is, like, the relationship between your debt. I don't know about you, Booth, when... But, you know, when you go from like for, for those of us in the United States, we often have a, just a ton of debt by the time we we're looking at that first job. And so one more year at $70,000 versus a year at faculty pay is a big difference in terms of interest and such. So I wonder if that might be a little bit. But I mean, you know, you and I both agree you need, you know, if you really want to do research, you're going to need to know a little bit more than what you get in a typical med on training. Yeah, no, I agree. And there, there is definitely, I mean, uh, I, I got through medical school in the era just before tuition really went haywire. So I was very privileged in that sense to, to train in an era of minimal debt. It's very different now. And so there is that pressure um, for sure. But I guess if you take a step back and yeah. say, you know, what do we want academic physicians to be doing? We want them to look after patients really well, and they're ready to do that after their PGY five or six year. We want them to like be really, really good teachers. They may or may not be ready for that. And we want them to do research. And if they don't do any training in that, we wonder why a lot of people in academic medicine are not, um, you know, they might be superb clinicians, but they're not contributing in a major way to education or research. Well, it's probably because they haven't had either enough mentorship or sure. some training in that. So I'm not saying everyone needs to do a one or two year fellowship, 
but I think that there are benefits to doing it. Um, and I, but I will go back to emphasizing that I think the core mission of academic medicine is still looking after patients. And a lot of people will be um, more than ready to do that after their clinical training, and they need to find a niche of what else they will do in the academy. Yeah, and I think that the in my mind the best research is with that same goal of looking after patients because you're fighting about what it means to look after patients well. That's literally at stake in the research. But let me ask you this: I mean, I was just listening to some podcasts, and I don't, you know, some I, I like to listen to other oncology podcasts and other podcasts broadly. But this podcast we're talking about academic careers in oncology, and literally the only mindset of the the the, the podcast was the industry clinical trialist. Um, it was. I mean, I, I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like the people having the dialogue, they were all sharing the idea that the only thing that means to do scholarship is to run uncontrolled phase two studies. I mean, I think that's what they had in their mind. And so the whole dialogue revolved around that. And the question was, how do you balance your portfolio of uncontrolled phase two studies? How many industry initiated uncontrolled phase twos and how many investigator initiated uncontrolled phase two? And the reason I say that is because, you know, the truth is that probably the phase two is the majority of their practice and a little bit of phase three for these global randomized trials. But to be honest, the CROs are recruiting vigorously globally for those. And then a little bit of phase one, but often they delegate that to a member of the group. Okay. So, you know, I, I don't know the, the, what I want to raise here is this issue of like, well, what does it mean to be an academic oncologist? I think most people are increasingly thinking about it as if it means you run those studies. Um, so you see patients and as much as possible, you put patients on those studies and you run those studies. But you and I have a different conception of it because we think an academic oncologist means Ian Tannock, uh, Elizabeth Eisenhower, a person who sees patients as a consummate clinician, somebody who, I know in Ian's, Ian's case, ran a lab. And I don't know about Elizabeth, did she run a lab or is she just very knowledgeable about laboratory science? You know, so yeah, they either run a lab or they know a lot about laboratory work. They see patients, they, they increasingly learn about regulatory processes and they put it all together and they come out with these devastating papers where they ask us to reconceptualize something that we take for granted. And, and to be honest, that's what you do too. Um, and the paper we're going to talk about, which I think is really asking us to reconceptualize that in a 30,000 foot view of oncology. But I think the reality is like when people think about academic medicine, this thing, that's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about how do I get my name as last author on a JCO paper that's a trial of, you know, the seventh BTK inhibitor in CLL or the fourth VEGF antibody in colon cancer or whatever, you know, what yeah. would you say to that? So what I would say, um, so this is probably going to piss some people off. Good. That's so, why you're here both. Yeah. Piss them off. <laughs> okay. So I would say that um, hardcore clinical trialists who actually write their own protocols, come up with novel questions and move forward with clinical trials. That's serious, hardcore academic oncology. Um, putting patients on trials that have been conceptualized, written, and designed by other people. That's, there's nothing academic about that. It's important, and all of us have done that because that's how clinical trials get completed. But the idea that that would define someone's career and make them a hardcore academic, I, I would challenge. I would say that um, there's a role for that, and I would say that if someone's doing that in the academic, in the academic setting, you know, that's an expectation. But if they're truly contributing to the academy, I, I would hope that they have something else they're doing, a lot of teaching, maybe, um, you know, designing some of their own in-house studies. But uh, I, I agree, putting patients on other people's trials, it's a necessary component of what we do, and it's an important one, but I don't think that's the epitome of academic medicine. Unfortunately, wow. I think that's what brings in the dollars. Yes. Uh, 
especially in, in the context of, you know, U.S. academic medical centers. So it brings in the dollars and it's also a lot easier of an eye. Like, I mean, as you well know, right, writing your own grants, um, building your own team, getting rejected over and over again, that that's hard. That's very, very hard. Yeah. And if someone comes and says, we have this protocol, you can put some patients on, you might be able to tweak the protocol. We're going to fly you to Hawaii to talk about the protocol for three days. And if you put on 40 patients, you'll get your name in the middle of a New England Journal protocol. Like, geez, you got to wonder, like, why wasn't Prasad smart enough to say yes to that? And <laughs> That's what I wonder. So, I mean, because when I decided to, or, you know, go out on the career path, I had Bill McKillop sat me down. One of my formative mentors yeah. was a hardcore health services researcher. And he said, Chris, there are much easier paths. Uh, and he said, you can have a very gratifying career in academic medicine with a much easier path. I just want to make sure you know what you're getting into it, you know, and, and it's not like it's been a total slog, but there's been there's been challenges. And I mean, that's some of the joys of being in the academy is the variety. Right. And we haven't talked about but the, 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 the privilege, you know, privilege of oncology is looking after the patients. The privilege of being an academic physician is working with the students and the trainees. Right. That That's that's what I love. And um, and then having dedicated time each week to to be able to think and write and to be creative and to imagine how we might be able to modify the system or the way that a disease or a treatment is conceptualized is uh you know it's it's, it's a wonderful opportunity you know I, I you know you know as you and i have said many times we feel very fortunate to have this type of job despite the fact there are there are some headaches occasionally <laughs> i mean uh, now i mean obviously the listeners are going to know why i like you so much because you know you everything you said is exactly what i would tell people which is um yeah that that to me is not what it really means to do academic work. I mean, I appreciate it. It's well received. You know, I'm sure it breaks people money, but that's not really academics. Academics is you have to push back. And and I would even go for, I mean, I, I want to give them the pep talk. Here's my pep talk. And maybe you'll give a pep talk too. You know, why should you do this kind of stuff? Um, there's a fellow named multiple myeloma um, named Mani, who um, listeners will know very shortly because he's going to come on this podcast because we have like several papers in the works. And he listened to this podcast. He read the book Malignant. And he is a multiple myeloma guy, or he's a budding multiple myeloma guy. He's going to start his first faculty job. And he emailed me and had a bunch of ideas for ways we can build on some of the themes of, you know, my work is an extension of your work and your work is an extension, you know, uh, of, of Ian's work and that kind of stuff. And he's building on it in his own way. Um, and he reached out to me and every one of his ideas, you know, it really, it, it pushes on something in the field. He's challenging something in the field. It's all about how can the trials better serve the patients and not serve the, the trial sponsors. Um, and, and I want to say like one, I think that that is, it's, it's more interesting. Like you're going to have a more interesting life. If you do these kinds of things, you're going to have more to think about and debate Two, I think you have a moral duty to do that. And that's what I will argue, which is that we are taking care of vulnerable people. And in fact, they're so vulnerable that our society has, you know, created all these regulatory apparatuses to protect dying people from choices that dying people would once make themselves out of desperation. You know, we shield them from, you know, drugs that don't have safety testing or drugs that don't have proven efficacy, you know, when we come to approved drugs, um, because we know sick and dying people can make bad choices. Um, that system has to some degree been co-opted by for-profit interests. And the only person in this whole system I see who has sworn a goddamn oath to do what's best for the patient is the doctor. We have sworn that oath. And that extends not just to your bedside manner and how you treat individual patients. It extends, I believe, to your entire career that your oath means that at every juncture, you feel like there is an injustice going on, be it the promotion of ramucirumab for something it doesn't do a lot in, you know, high cost, um, 
missed opportunity cost, something that you and I will probably talk about again in the future, um, low value care, um, you have an obligation, I think, a special obligation to your profession to find that, articulate it, persuade others that it's a problem. And that is academic work. Um, and that is really important work. And um, I don't know, this profession has been greater because of the people who have done that. Um, you know, Bernie Fisher did it. Ian did it. Tito did it. All the people, you know, Elizabeth did it. Elizabeth did a lot, you know, a lot of wonderful stuff. I mean, all the people you and I admire um, are not just the people who put the most patients on trials. They're people who saw some misalignment in the incentives and they wanted to draw attention to it and persuade others that it was a problem. Now, what's your pep talk for them, Booth? Yeah, I agree. So two, two follow-up thoughts. The first is um, something you mentioned about your colleague, uh, the junior fellow yeah. in myeloma. So just for the trainees listening. So it, it, this fellow sounds um, unusual in the sense that uh, he is actually putting forward innovative and important questions and research ideas at a very junior stage. And, and, and that, that's impressive and exciting. But just because uh, often I hear trainees who are considering going in, into the academy tell me that, well, I don't feel like I have a lot of good ideas. So just to reassure your listeners that um, the, the myeloma fellow is probably an exception. Um, you know, Vinay Prasad probably had some ideas. Some were good and some were bad. Uh, but I can tell you, I had some ideas, but a lot of the projects I did when I was a resident and a researcher, almost all of them were concepts uh, that were really kind of germinated with my senior mentors. And then we developed them together. And then, you know, even now, my, my current fellow, you know, in an informal conversation just said, you know, I wonder, you know, you know, I don't get these ideas like you do. And I, I, re, I reassured him, I tried to reassure him and said, you know, I didn't necessarily either. I don't know if this comes with kind of age or wisdom or experience, but I just wouldn't want your trainees to think that just because they don't have brilliant ideas for projects at this stage doesn't mean they're not cut out for a career in academic medicine, because I think that's something that comes with time and experience and would become a master of a certain niche area. There's logical questions that flow from it. So that's one point I wanted to elaborate on. Um, the second is, I, I think what you're getting at is, you know, this opportunity that we have and almost, um, you know, obligation is that, you know, practicing medicine in general and having an academic job is one of the most privileged positions in society. And, uh, you know, it is, uh, you know, everyone had to work hard to get to this position. Um, you know, some people had to work a lot harder. You know, I consider myself having come from the background I had incredibly privileged and, and you know, try to keep that in mind when I make career choices. And uh, I, I think recognizing the joys and the privilege of having a career that are satisfying, we get well paid. It's very hard to lose your job. You'll always be able to find work and you can- I'm working the, on it, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> you have the reward and gratification of looking after patients. It, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful privilege. And I think whether that's in community practice or in the academy, having that mindset, I think will help sustain some of that kind of fire in the belly that, that you just described. And whether it's, you know, you're a hardcore clinician doing the best you can and advocating for your patients and your community of patients at your busy general hospital, or you're pushing the envelopes with new ways of teaching, thinking, writing, or researching in your area of medicine. I think that's, you know, that, that, that's where those ideas come together. That's really well put. And you're good to point out that, you know, you're not going to have those ideas on day one for like what to study. And I think to some degree that comes with, that's, that's the hardest thing to learn where to put your energies and what's important. Um, but I think the two things that a trainee can bring are often, you know, fresh eyes, they can see things that you didn't, that you take for granted Two, um, enthusiasm and energy that as we get a little bit along that you don't always have. And I would say the only advice I tell people is like, um, 
it's easy to run the first three quarters of the mile, but the most important is that last quarter mile. And I think that so many great projects, it was, you know, the difference between like no product and a product was the sticking to it, putting up with a few rejections and pushing it forward anyway in that last quarter mile. Um, and, 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 and I think if you're willing to do that, then, you know, you can, you'll, you'll learn as you go. I couldn't agree with you more. And as a former elite level middle distance runner, I can tell you that last quarter mile, I was a 1500 meter man in university yeah. in high school. And that last lap is hard. And you're right, having a good team to, to get you through. Um, and, and the other way I frame it, when I, when I meet with a trainee who has an idea, I say, um, you know, let's talk about an idea. And then I, I, we come up with a general idea. And I say, I want you to go away for a couple of weeks. I want you to think about this and write a two page proposal. And that's kind of a litmus test. And then do that and come back. And, and then we, we take it from there. But yes. Interesting. I do uh, similar things um, that like a litmus test. Um, I, I won't reveal my secrets. <laughs> on the podcast. Okay. Now let's talk about um, the paper that we're here to talk about. Um, this is a project that I'm very grateful um, you included me on. Um, maybe I contributed something, but the thing, my idea, I don't know, maybe it didn't contribute as much as I thought, but um this is a project that, you know, you've been working on for a long time. Well, I guess maybe I should be honest about how I first came across it. I think when I was a fellow, I had this question one day, which was, gosh, I hear about this PFS all the time. Um, I hear about it all the time. Was it always so popular? What the hell is it? And so I started reading about it. And of course, I came across your, you know, legendary commentary. But then I also came across that paper by um, the first author is K, K-A-Y, your last author, The Evolution of the Randomized Control Trial. I think this was an Annals of Oncology paper, was it? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. and I, I, so I so I came across this paper when I was a fellow. And the paper, the reason I loved it was um, Booth had done some interesting things. He captured what was the primary endpoint of a set of randomized controlled trials in oncology in different periods of time. And as time goes on, sure enough, the response rate diminished in, in popularity as an endpoint. Overall survival also diminished but PFS more than made up for the rest. Time to progression and PFS. Those two composite primary endpoints made up for the rest. And the other interesting thing that I used to always find so fascinating from that, that paper, um, which is one of the publications of this project, um, was the percent of studies that are industry funded and the sample size of studies. And both of those marched together in lockstep upwards, suggesting that when the industry gets more involved in studies, they power the crap out of them to find statistically significant, but perhaps clinically dubious distinctions. Um, and this is the update of that. Joey Del Paggio led this huge effort and, and Chris, um, to look at the randomized control trial. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about you. You always love these stories. Where were you when you had the idea, how you'd started doing this? And is this, this is the third update of the paper. Is that right? Yeah, yep, this is it. So that, that's a great introduction. So, um, this is the third paper in a series. Now this has been published over the first one was published in 2008. The uh, second paper was 2012, and this one will come out next week in JAM Oncology. So the idea started uh, very early in my training when I was in Dr. Tanik's clinic, and uh, the ATAC trial had just been published. I saw a woman with breast cancer and presented the case to him, and he asked for my management plan, and I said adjuvant and astrazole. And this is a story I've probably told you before, but so, and I said, well, Dr. Tanik, um, we should give an astrazole. He said, well, what about tamoxifen? I said, haven't you read the ATAC trial? And astrazole is way better. Yeah, and yeah. he said, young oncologists are increasingly impressed with smaller and smaller benefits. 
do you have any data to back that up? And he said, no, but you're going to go find it. And so that led to this first project, which was the evolution of the randomized control trial. So that conversation took place in 2005, and we decided to go back 30 years. Um, we chose 1975. I, I don't know, maybe because that was the year I was born. But anyhow, we went back to the mid-70s, and we had 30 years of trials from 75 to 2004. And we tracked endpoints, effect size, power, sample size, funding, and, and found a number of important observations, if you, as you have summarized. Um, uh, one of which was uh, an earliest, one of the earliest descriptions of, of so-called sponsorship bias, which is that even when one controls for the effect size, the p-value, and the endpoint, yeah. industry trials um, are more likely to be strongly endorsed as representing a new standard of care. So that was um, published in, in, in 2008 in JCO. And that probably that, that was actually pivotal for me in the sense that it was probably the first quote unquote meta research project I did and also allowed me to work with some amazing colleagues. Um, and then I, I moved to Kingston and did a research fellowship. And then uh, in 2010-11 as junior faculty, we thought we would update it. So we called the first block from 75 to 04 uh, evolution of the randomized trial in the area of cytotoxic therapy. Right. We did an update. Amin Kai was one of our residents. So it was 2005 to 2009, the era of molecular oncology, right? This is when all the targeted therapies were coming out. Um, and then, so that was published in 2012. And then, and I think, you know, it was probably you and I maybe on the waterfall hike or earlier, where uh, I think actually you called me out in one of your lectures publicly. You said, come on, Booth, we need to update this. And so I did. I, I did call you out on one of my episodes. I yeah, said, where's the update? I was like, geez. So, of course, I turned to the legendary Joey Del Paggio, as I like to refer to him. And Joey was one of our trainees, trained at Queens and Princess Margaret, and is now a busy community oncologist in northern Ontario and Thunder Bay. And so, uh, and Joey's done a lot of work with us. And so he led this. And I guess just to acknowledge the team. So this, uh, we briefly... The, the concept was to update it. So we had the cytotoxic era up to 04, the early targeted therapy era up to 09. And we said, well, let's look in the last decade, the era of precision oncology. You mean game changers, Chris, game changers. This is it, game changers, game changers. <laughs> so uh, the team was uh, Joey, uh, who led the work, um, John Barry, who was a summer student, uh, who did a lot of the data review, uh, Wilma Hopman, who's a biostatistician, who does a lot of work with our team and then a strong uh, supporting cast of characters with a major interest in this space yourself, Vishal and Elizabeth Eisenhower. And so it was a real, it was, it was a great team uh, of people with kind of common interests. And so I guess just to briefly summarize kind of the approach and we can talk about the results later. Um, we, when we had designed this in 2005, we said, we want to look at practice changing trials and it'll be overwhelming to look at 30 years of trials in every cancer. So let's choose yes. the major sites. So this is a, an overview of trials of systemic anti-cancer therapy in yeah. three major cancers, breast, colorectal, and non-small cell lung cancer, yes. published in major journals. And we can be criticized for that, but we had to draw the line somewhere else to become overwhelming. And we actually wanted to look at quote, quote unquote, practice changing widely read trials. And so I think it was reasonable to restrict it. So we kept updating it with the same diseases. So uh, the current study, looks at trials of those three diseases published between 2010 and 2020 um, in seven major journals, the, the usual journals um, that we would expect, some of the general journals, the New England, JAM and Lancet, the specialty journals, JAM Oncology, Lancet Oncology, JCO, and JNCI. 
Um, and uh, that was kind of where we started. We had some, uh, we wanted to update it, look at how things have changed over time. And we had a few variables of interest that we also explored that were new. So that is interesting. So now I am a part of the legacy, the long legacy. But you know, it's such an interesting paper. Um, um, you, I mean, we found so many things and we looked at a couple of things that we have never hitherto looked at. And that's, you know, that's what I'm going to get excited about. Um, but I think this is telling because, you know, um, what we design and power our randomized studies for and what we find in these studies is a reflection, I think, um, both of the drugs that are developed but also of the human side of science, the way in which we choose the targets, we choose, you know, um, duplicative Me Too drugs versus first-in-class drugs, the way we, we, we run our agenda. We are talking about a paper just out in JAMA Oncology. Chris, the title is The Evolution of the Randomized Control Trial. What is the exact title, actually? Evolution of the Randomized Control Trial in the Era of Precision Oncology. Ah, wonderful. And this updates two prior efforts by the Booth team looking at randomized control trials in oncology in three different epochs of time. Chris, in the first part, you, you laid the groundwork why we're doing this paper. Um, now, in part two, let's give us the results. Tell me, tell me what, 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 what you all found. Right. So, um, so thanks, Vinay. So this is the second installment of this. So just to recognize our all-star team, um, this work was led by Joey Del Paggio uh, with strong support from John Barry, who was a summer student, reviewed a lot of the papers. Wilma Hopman, as always, was our biostatistical wizard. And as mentioned, we had a cast of characters who are interested in this space, including Vinay Prasad, Bishal Gawali, and the legendary Elizabeth Eisenhower. So um, just to remind listeners very briefly, uh, we searched for all systemic therapy trials of breast, lung, and colorectal cancer published over the last decade in um, our field's major journals. And we did that because it replicates the methods of what we have done over the last 40 years now. Um, this is the third iteration, so we wanted to be consistent in the cohort that we studied. So what did we find? Um, we had 298 RCTs published over that decade. Um, and uh, not surprisingly, there's been a shift towards trials that are targeting specific molecular abnormalities of cancer. Mm -hmm. So only 28% of these trials are actually testing new cytotoxic therapies. 5% mm -hmm. are testing novel hormonal approaches to cancer care. And the vast majority, um, over 60%, are targeted agents. Um, when we look at actually what they're targeting, only a small number, 8% of the trials, I think it was like 25 trials or something, uh, were immunotherapy trials. Uh, the rest are looking at other um, targeted agents within cancer. And, and of course, so the immunotherapy trials are probably a little underrepresented, um, but that's because if you think of the diseases we're looking at, breast, colorectal cancer, there's been limited action for immunotherapy. We have lung cancer, which is where a lot of the action is. But of course, because we do not include melanoma or renal cell cancer, <laughs> we are missing some of the immunotherapy action. Mm. Um, so that's uh, a bit about what the trials look like. What are they asking? 69% um, um, of them are conducted in the palliative space. 89% uh, are funded by industry. We're going to talk about temporal trends in a moment. Um, about half of them are positive. We found this consistently in almost every meta-research uh, project we've done. The principle of equipoise appears to be alive and well in oncology. Typically, it's about 50% are quote-unquote positive as defined by a p-value with enough zeros after it to make the oncologists excited. <laughs> of course. Um, so a couple, uh, we'll, we'll touch briefly on the historical trends yeah. in a moment, but a couple other findings. So 
one concern that we've had is that in the targeted era, we're designing trials, but we're, we're still giving these drugs to all comers. And we've seen that um, there is biomarker enrichment happening at a greater rate in the modern era, but only 60% of RCTs testing new targeted approaches are actually um, restricting patients based on a biomarker. So they're still giving a drug that's apparently targeting a specific molecular abnormality of cancer, but they're just enrolling all comers. And so mm -hmm. obviously that's kind of, you know, a, uh, a, a very unintelligent way to identify who's going to really benefit from this. And that's probably why we end up with a whole bunch of trials with very modest or mediocre effect sizes because it's being diluted by the fact we're giving it to everyone. And so I think that's a call for stronger translational science and rationale for, for these trials. But certainly it has improved over well, you time. You know what I would say, the right population to deploy a targeted drug is the broadest population that gives yeah. you the p-value of 0.049. <laughs> and that's what they're hoping for, huh? No, no, you're absolutely right. So a couple other findings. Um, when we looked at uh, the effect size, um, so it's modest. Um, this, uh, this actually, I think, was probably the, inspired by Tito Fojo's famous paper years ago where they looked at solid tumor drugs approved by the FDA and the median gain in overall survival was like two months. And so in, in our series, it's very consistent with that. It's about three months. Median improvement in overall survival amongst positive trials is three months. And, and about the same for progression-free survival. Um, I guess just the last um, kind of result I'll mention, this is gonna send VP off his rocker, is that uh, there's been a huge uptake and increase in the use of professional medical writers. Um, and that's to compensate, I guess, for the ineptitude of the writing of the academic physicians who are leading these trials. But I'll, I'll let Vinay comment on that. But so what we found is that this was, you know, obviously did not exist in our earlier iterations of the evolution of the RCT. But in the last decade, um, now more than one third of RCTs are reporting use of a writer. Um, but, but in the recent years, we're now seeing two thirds of these RCTs are acknowledging assistance from a professional medical writer. And I suspect it's probably higher than that because they may or may not always be disclosed. So I'm going to pause and tell Vinay to do his mindfulness deep breathing, and then he can respond to those comments. <laughs> um, well, you know, it was going to get under my skin. But yeah, I found it fascinating that, you know, you can look at figure three of this paper, but even from 2010 to 2020, I mean, I think that you can see there is a trend in upward rise of the medical writer. The medical writer is, um, you know, um, the medical writer is, is, is like the badge of honor for having one of these high impact publications. I guess I would say, you know, I mean, things that you've heard me say a million times on this podcast, which is, um, when you read these papers and the medical writers involved, you can see how at many junctures, the language is carefully crafted to downplay the harms and upplay the benefits, carefully crafted to explain why control arms that were inadequate were actually okay, or why the lack of crossover is actually okay, even though it wasn't. Um, you know, they've carefully crafted their word choice um, uh, the, way, the way a PR person does. Um, I think that that is problematic. But my bigger problem is that you know, we talked about in the first part of this interview, which was like, what does it mean to be an academic? And I think to be an academic means you have to independently come up with ideas and push the envelope of where the field is and the consensus of others. And part of that includes you have to write your own damn papers. I keep saying that. But I couldn't imagine if I went to college, um, you know, and I brought along my medical writer with me, my, my writer to help me draft all my, um, you know, projects. Um, 
it would it would be frowned upon and it's unique i mean i'm not aware of any other field like economists arguably you know you've read economic papers they're unreadable they need somebody to translate that so i can understand um but they don't because all these other professions believe that you know writing is fundamental to the task in you know sometimes people say like how is it different than having a statistician and i was like well it is different actually because statistics is something that the statistician can provide some additional guidance about what are the right tests to do when and how you might interpret that but to be honest um you know a good trialist also understands to some degree statistical processes and and stochasticity but writing is literally how you conceive and articulate the thing itself it is literally the core task of the person who's signing on the beginning of it. So I see no way around it that, I mean, I, I think it's a problematic trend. What are your thoughts? I agree. On yeah. um, I agree. And so I would um, direct your listeners to read a very powerful editorial published by Antanic just about oh, a month yeah, ago yeah. in Annals of Oncology. Uh, the title is something along the lines of have academic oncologists forgotten how to write. Yeah. And Ian tells this beautiful story. First of all, he was inspired by him looking at abstracts from either ASCO or ESMO and being shocked because the list of pharmaceutical company disclosures for the authors uh, was longer than the abstract itself. And he decided to write about that. And the second thing is that he was just blown away that the medical writers were so engaged in this. And I mean, as he writes about in his editorial and as we write about in our discussion of our manuscript, um, there, there's reasons to be concerned here. As you mentioned, this is not tolerated in other areas of the academy. Um, it's probably contrary to the principles of, of science. Um, I suspect it's contrary to the editorial principles of the ICMJE. And um, we can have a discussion from a policy point of view about how these data might inform um, you know, journal policies going forward. And the other thing is it, it, it's difficult to imagine that the effect of medical writers is neutral. It's just very difficult to imagine. I mean, I, I've done some deep dives in these companies. Some of them are so overt that the title of the company is spin or, or they have or twist. There's a medical writing company called Twist, which is brilliant. But if they're trying to be covert about it, it's probably not so brilliant. So I, I, I think it's problematic. I think it is problematic. And I would encourage junior trialists or you know senior trialists that, that are listening to this podcast to be willing to push back and think very carefully about whether they are willing to, to be a part of this process. Because I think, I think there's fundamentally some problems with this. You know, on this podcast, and and you know, you and I have spun some of these out and tried to write them up. But you know, we talked about Profound and Polo and some of these trials. Where the more you read it, you know, um, the charitable thing to say is that you're troubled by some of the design choices. You're troubled by a lot of the choices, and and you're troubled by the spin. Um, and when you read that, there's always a few sentences that I'm like, oh my god, it's like the absolute slickest way to present this in the most misleading way possible and you know that the person who wrote that is you know somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about just how to phrase it in a way that you know the true trialist or the academic would not be they would be a little bit more i think forthcoming and transparent about that fact um and that to me is i think part of the problem in addition to the fact that i don't know you know what your mother always taught you which is if chris booth if you put your name on it you better have worked on it you know it's just such a simple principle agree agree oh, okay let me talk to you about figure um, two. Figure two blows me away, Chris. It blows me away. So figure two is temporal trends in primary endpoint and industry funding. It has just three simple lines on it. And I can tell you right now, Chris, I'm going to be tweeting this when, when it comes out. 
Um, because the three lines are, you know, the x-axis, 1975 to 84, 85 to 94, 95 to 04, 05 to 09, 2010 to 2020. Um, and the fraction of randomized control trials that use overall survival as the primary endpoint. Of course, in the 70s, that wasn't popular because, you know, we did a lot of studies looking at response rate. You know, that was back in a different era. That was in an era where we were looking at a lot of candidate compounds to just see what was active. And we've talked about that, why Mortel, you know, picked those cutoffs and things like that in, in these podcasts before. Um, but by 1985 to 1994, you know, 60% of randomized control trials, overall survival was the primary endpoint, which is what patients really fundamentally care about. That has just steadily declined from 94 all the way to the present day while PFS has taken off. And industry funding, I didn't think it could go higher than your last iteration, but it has gone higher, the fraction of randomized trials that are industry funded. When you put it all together, the narrative I see is that the industry is both good and bad. The good thing about the industry is because of the industry, we have more putative cancer compounds than we've ever had in history. We've got more drugs than we ever had. And that potentially is good if you use those drugs wisely. The bad is we are increasingly measuring endpoints that do not themselves matter to patients. Um, we're doing so with power that is um, designed to eke out statistical success, even if the benefits aren't meaningful. Um, and and we have forgotten about overall survival to the point where, you know, many real quote unquote expert oncologists act as if that's an afterthought. It's not even important anymore. Um, when you see this figure, I guess, what are your thoughts having done this for so many years? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is the most important figure of the paper. And, and as you said, you know, there was some encouraging signals, you know, shifting from the 70s into the 80s where our community um, recognized that response rate was not the most important endpoint. Overall survival was. So it peaked in the 80s at about, you know, 60% of RCTs. Overall survival was the primary endpoint. But there's been this gradual erosion. And so in the most recent era, we're now, you know, less than a third of trials are measuring overall survival as the primary endpoint and PFS has skyrocketed now. It's now, you know, up, upwards of a half and even it's climbing. So it's going to continue to climb, um, which is worrisome. Uh, the proportion of trials funded by industry, um, you know, in, in the in the 90s was in the range of 57 percent. In the early 2000s, when we last published this, it was up to 78 percent. And in, in the last decade, it's now 89 percent of these RCTs of systemic therapy and major cancers are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And, wow. and I think we have to recognize that. And, and as, as, as you say, I think both you and I have generally been critical of the pharmaceutical industry, but we do need to recognize that a lot of our breakthrough drugs have come because of positive collaborations with the industry. Um, you know, the COVID vaccine is an example of, you know, the, the industry uh, providing a, 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 a very great good for society, but there are downsides. And there's downsides because there's ulterior motives. There's downsides now because we have all of our eggs in one basket. And the uh, entire RCT research ecosystem, you know, entire, I say in quotations, not, not all of it, but pretty darn close to it, is now funded by the pharmaceutical industry, which means that not only are there problems with minimal effect size and spin, but it also means that we are now pigeonholed into investigating a very narrow part of questions which matter to patients and systems. Yeah. And yeah. so all the questions that patients want to know about lifestyle, diet, exercise, shortening treatment intervals using less toxic or uh, more convenient regimen, patients and systems, those are of very little interest to the industry, which commands the resources to fund all of this. So there's, there's, there's a crisis in our research ecosystem about where the funding is coming from. Are there any, I mean, 
I think this is such an important paper, and I'm glad that the editors at Jam Oncology saw the value of this, and I think it will be widely read, and I think it will be widely cited. Um, the only other thing that I that I wanted to highlight again is that sample size. The sample size has again gone up. You know, yet again, um, the average sample size of these studies has um, has uh, has 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 grown. Um, uh, it's quite remarkable, really. Um, you know what we're what we're seeing. Um, I guess, I mean, to, to sort of just to draw upon what you were just saying a minute ago. I mean, I think the industry is problematic. They're setting the agenda. The agenda. You're, you're right. There are lots of questions that are important. Drug questions are a fraction of those questions. And of the drug questions, we're only getting certain types of drug studies. Um, Me too mentality. Is there anything else in this paper that jumps out to you as you know worth discussing? Um, I think some of the key kind of take home points. So I think as a community, we talked about this, you know, a month or two ago, when we looked at our global overview is I mm-hmm. think we have to have honest conversations within our community as investigators, trialists, policymakers and clinicians about the endpoints we use and the effect size that we power our trials to detect. And we have to really carefully consider, is this the most appropriate endpoint? Does it matter to patients? And does this effect size? Is it meaningful to patients? Because there's increasing data coming out this you know, our group and others have called the efficacy to effectiveness gap, the EE gap, which is that, you know, we're finding median survival gains of two or three months in the context of a clinical trial. The evidence overwhelmingly suggests that those gains will be attenuated in the real world. And if, you know, if the treatment's more toxic, the, the, the benefit might completely disappear. So I think we need to think at the forefront of every trial and treatment we recommend is the endpoint and the effect size. I think, you know, the medical writers is something I, I, I believe very strongly that the journal editors and community need to consider. Are, are they willing to support this? Is this something that is consistent with editorial policies um, and, and how that might be shaping science? And I guess the last thing from a trial design point of view is if we are continuing to believe in the promise of precision oncology and molecular targeted therapies, we probably need to get smarter about designing trials that are enriched for patients who are most likely to benefit. And, you know, we, we've seen that only just, just over half of trials of targeted agents are enriched for patients with that specific biomarker. So I think those are the, a few of the key take-home messages. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um... I wanted to ask you about one other matter. You know, recently I was on a panel and the panel was about conflict of interest. And um, it was interesting because I think a lot of people there did not have the perspective that you and I have. And then the other thing that happened since we last spoke was, I don't know if you follow the Surgeon General in this country, the Surgeon General nominee. I wrote about it and tweeted about it. Um, And, uh, you know, I I got a little bit of pushback. But um, the, the short story was, you know, we had this guy, he was Surgeon General. Um, typically they do their one and done kind of job. They don't come in and come out and go back and forth. This person is coming back. Sure. Fine. Um, this person is a different surgeon general because they're taking over in the midst of a pandemic where we are facing all these unprecedented restrictions, which are done, you know, with a good intent, which is to curb the viral spread, but which have generated a fierce backlash as one would expect. And particularly in a country like America, where people are divided and this surgeon general, literally before he, he took the job, he had gotten a ridiculous sum of money, $800,000 from Airbnb, 600 grand from Netflix and $400,000 from Carnival Cruise Line. And I don't know, to me, that just stinks because if you're going to go and you're going to tell me when you can open cruise ships and you know when you have to go stay in your house and watch Netflix and you're taking 600 grand from Netflix, I'm not going to be too happy about that. And you know, on this panel, 
they were talking about Dr. Baselga and they were talking about how, you know, um, he ultimately was, I think, pushed to resign from Sloan Kettering because of the, the undisclosed conflicts of interest. Um, and, um, you know, they were, they were kind of had mixed, people had mixed emotions about that whole thing. And I guess, to be honest, um, I also have mixed emotions because I don't like it when I see a systemic problem and then we just pick one person and punish that one person, but like every other person who's, you know, problematic and the whole system itself, like we do nothing to reform that, like that bothers me too. Um, but you know, I also said like, it wasn't that much of a punishment because, you know, he did get a job that probably pays like five times as much money. So <laughs> I, like, I pray God every day, someone will punish me like that. Punish me and give me a job that pays me five times as much money. I'll take that punishment. Uh, so I guess I was wondering, I mean, you know, you've obviously written about it. Um, I guess I might, I get a two-part question. One, your thoughts on conflict of interest and, and, and if you think it's still important in the next decade. And then two, the meta question, which is how, how do you talk about conflict of interest and trials endpoints and PFS? And, you know, you don't step on anyone's toes, Chris. People like you. You're a likable person. So how do you, how do you balance the, the two things? Okay, let's do the conflict first. Um, so I think conflict of interest in medicine are pervasive and deeply problematic. Um, I think that, you know, you and, and others have uh, shown clear examples of how these conflicts are associated with decision making at the clinical or policy level that are problematic. But there's also the perception of conflict. And so whether or not it influences behavior, um, I think it would make patients feel quite uncomfortable to know that their physician or surgeon is, um, it, you know, may or may not be uh, recommending a treatment because of another financial relationship. So I, I think they're common. I, I actually, I, I have hope that, that, you know, a lot of this is you and your cohort of colleagues that have been so vocal about this. I think the next generation is much more mindful of this. I mm -hmm. think that that is changing. And whether or not um, it'll translate to, you know, less conflict at the decision making table, that's the big thing is I think more people will recognize it's a problem, but who are going to be the decision makers and will they uh, remain conflicted? I think that remains to be seen. Your second question, um, Vinay, I don't push as hard on this as you do. And that's probably why I don't raise as many antibodies. But you know what, if you didn't have people like you, and a handful of others who are pushing this really hard, there would be much less incentive for the system to change. So I think, you know, I haven't made this one of my major, uh, you know, the major foci of my work, but, uh, you know, I applaud you and others that do, you guys take a lot of flack and a lot of heat. And, but, but I think, and you, you know, I've been reading a book lately about change and, um, you know, people who are pushing for, for system change are gonna make others feel uncomfortable. And so I think, you know, you can wear that as, as a, in some ways as a, as a badge of honor. So I haven't pushed as hard on this, but I certainly uh, echo many of your concerns. That's terrific. Um, Chris, is there anything else we should cover? I had one more thing. Did you see this new drug approval in small cell lung cancer? No, no. <laughs> We're working on something, but, you know, the gist of it is, it is, uh, I believe, a cyclin 4-6 kinase inhibitor that's yeah. given in combination with the chemotherapy, but it has no... The endpoint is to prevent um, chemotherapy-induced cytopenias because it's thought to protect the hematopoietic system from the toxic effects of the chemotherapy. But of course, does it actually improve survival or quality of life? These are considered superfluous questions for the regulators, even though we're talking about extended stage small cell lung cancer, which last I checked is something where people care about things in the acute setting. 
Um, so that was the primary endpoint was looking at cytopenias. Yes, hematopoietic toxicities. Yeah. Wow, that that it blows my mind. So I mean, just where you know, if you could show a strong association between dose intensity and survival or outcomes that really matter, that's one thing. But you know, you could have a thought experiment here. What endpoint would regulators consider too far removed from overall survival and quality of life? You know, we're looking at hematopoietic toxicity. What about um, fingernail toxicity? Um, you know, is, is it plausible that we have an expensive drug that mitigates some of the, um, uh, the fingernail toxicity from EGFR inhibitors? W would that actually get approved? Would we start using these things? Like, I mean, you have to think about how far we're willing to go. So I'm not familiar with that specific uh, approval, but, but it certainly seems part and parcel with some of the problems within our field. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think people have forgotten that you know, for highly lethal conditions, you really have to show you extend survival or improve global quality of life in a in a sort of very robust way, um, and 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 not these kind of very small things. Um, it's a problem. Um, okay, Chris, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I always enjoy our conversations, and I know listeners do too. Um, people can find you in Kingston, Ontario doing the Lord's work. They can find you not on Twitter, not on Facebook, not on Instagram, <laughs> by email. Yeah, by email, the good old fashioned way. And um, yeah, no, it's always a pleasure, but I enjoy talking to you. And, uh, you know, I, I've said this before, but I think this podcast is a huge service to our community. And I tell every, you know, trainee, I would tell every oncologist, but, you know, People my age may not listen to me, but the trainees have to listen to me. Um, and, and I tell them that I think one of the most important things they can do to make themselves a better and more critically thinking oncologist is to listen to us because bring on guests that share a range of opinions and ideas. And you and the guests collectively are willing to push, um, you know, push the limits and, and ask questions that might make our community uncomfortable, but, um, you know, demand answers if we want to move things forward to improve outcomes and, and care for the patients that we look after. That's very kind of you, Chris. And I, I look forward to the day where this podcast can return to cancer medicine and there's nothing else, no COVID to distract me from my, my sworn duty to deal with cancer medicine. I agree. Thank I you. agree. And oh, the other error would be, the other part is post-COVID, then we'll be able to recreate, a, you know, some kind of legendary dinner party like Mortel did, oh. where... Uh, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, we'll have some kind of something that we talked about at this very fun dinner party that, uh, you know, our, 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 the next generation of podcasters will be dissecting. So certainly it'll be a wonderful again to be able to meet in person when that day comes. I look forward to that. It's great to see you, Chris. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.